Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Tamara St. John. Tamara St. John is an enrolled member of the Sisseton Wapitan Sioux Tribe of the Lake Travers Reservation of South Dakota. She is the tribal archivist and curator of collections and works with the Tribal Historical Preservation Office on cultural preservation issues. She has been working on the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act issues for the tribe with a long-term goal of building a tribal visitor center and museum. Tamara is a Native American genealogist and has done extensive research in the history of the Dakota, Lakota, Dakota, or Ochete Shakuni. She has worked with the Minnesota Historical Society and along with other Dakota tribes, collaborated on the commemorating controversy, the Dakota-U.S. War of 1862 exhibition. She worked with the North Dakota State University and the Center for Heritage Renewal, participating in a panel discussions of the Dakota-U.S. Wars of 1862 and the massacre of Whitestone Hill. Tamara is a former board member of the South Dakota Humanities Council and works with the South Dakota and the North Dakota Native Tourism Alliance organizations. Tamara was elected to the South Dakota State Legislature in 2018, completed her second term in 2022 legislative session, and will be returning for re-election in November of 2022. Tamara is currently leading the work to repatriate two Sisseton Wapitan Dakota children who attended the Carlisle, Pennsylvania Industrial School for Indians in 1879. Both Amos LaFromboy and Edward Upright are buried at the cemetery in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is now an active military base. Since 2016, Tamara St. John has worked with other tribal nations to navigate the complex issues that surround the unique issues related to the repatriation of the Carlisle Indian School Cemetery. Now, before we jump into this conversation with uh, Representative St. John, like we have for the last couple of weeks and for next week, we wanted to to note that these uh, conversations with these representatives, these aren't endorsements of these representatives, and the views expressed by these representatives are not reflective of the Plains Art Museum. Uh, that being said, uh, these are conversations about um, the stories of these representatives and their journey through our communities. And this is a great conversation and very interesting with, with Tamara, and I'm very excited to share with you. So with that being said, Let's jump into this conversation with Representative Tamara St. John. Tamara St. John, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really, it's really an honor to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. We've talked about this for a while, so it's nice that it's happening now. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, well, would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from. Sure. Um, my name, again, is Tamara St. John, and I'm a member of the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate, or the Sisseton Wapitan Sioux Tribe. And um, I was born here in Sisseton. I've lived in South Dakota most of my life. I am the current archivist for the tribe. I'm considered the tribe's historian or works with the, the person that works with the tribe's history. I'm also the curator of the tribe's artifacts, art and collections. And um, I'm basically a big history nerd. 
That's really what it comes down to. And I take that with me wherever I go. And recently I began serving in the state legislature. And uh, that is really a result of being a historian as well, because looking at you know, the current situation now, um, you know, where we are as tribes, uh, individually or as a whole, you know, these things are a result of decisions that often we haven't been a part of. So that had been, you know, something that I had wanted to be involved in for some time. And as of this year, I completed my second term and my fourth year. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you're, your dedication to public service is something that is one, I think deeply appreciated in our community. And it's something that I know the elders had often talked about, you know, being a part of the community and giving back. And I think a lot of young people, um, while passionate about that, um, maybe have difficulty connecting themselves to what public service is. And I think maybe that's a generational thing. I think maybe every generation has that. Um, what, um, what led you to uh, this path? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I I find that I am um, I'm a little unique in how I got to where I am, and it isn't something that I had intentionally planned. Although, you know, as a Native American person, you know, I've always been interested in history. But um, I had begun to take care of my elderly grandparents. And uh, in my younger years, I had small children and I would spend summers just helping them. And it wound up being uh, it just totally immersed in their lives and talking about their history, family genealogy. I'm a huge proponent for genealogy because of my experience. In genealogy, it forces you to look back, you look at your um, ancestors, and also you're having to look at things, cultural things, language, and history. So that's really what it did for me. And um, what I began to do was not just genealogy, but also delve into what wound up being um, the legislative history of the Dakota people. And I had developed a huge archives of genealogy. And just because I've uh, worked with it for so many years, I had built my own um, archival collection of history. And somewhere along the line, the tribe got a hold of me and had uh, asked me to begin working with their archives. And how, how has that relationship been? It has been fantastic. I've actually um, celebrated my 14th year with the tribe. And I have a, um, I work under a tribal historic preservation office. And I was actually thinking about that today as I drove to work that, you know, it's not just history. It's dealing with history in a modern way um, when it comes to preserving and protecting or sharing our cultural history. It's really about taking control um, and, uh, you know, take, taking control of our, our cultural history by telling our own stories. And uh, it, it encompasses so much more than I think I would have ever thought. It winds up being uh, things like 
sacred site protection, you know, the places of importance locally, um, things like uh, burial grounds, uh, places of prayer when it comes to our Aboriginal territory, those are things that we fight to preserve too. So then my aspect of it has always been to do the research on and to develop the proof or the evidence of why it's important. You know, why is this so um, important that we would, you know, develop devote so much time and effort into ensuring that something isn't impacted or that the story is told correctly. And we wind up doing that with uh, the, on a national level, the National Park Service and their um, initiative to bring that tribal voice into the interpretation of so many places. A lot of the national parks and places that I think uh, people visit um, often are, you know, the history that's shared there hasn't been told by us. Um, you know, we have names for these places that maybe most people don't know. And uh, it becomes something that I think um, benefits everybody in the end. And, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it with all tribes to tell their own story at these places. But we work with it on a national level, state level, and then locally as well. One thing I've been encouraged by seeing is in Minnesota, they've been changing some of the, the, the names of like lakes in certain areas back to the traditional names. And mm -hmm. uh, the state's working with the tribes and making that happen. Right. And that is really important work. Um, and I, I always feel like I'm in a rush to document because a lot of this knowledge, you know, it leaves us when our elders leave or that, you know, we have lost so much during the assimilation era, you know, that it's really, I think, a, a mad scramble to preserve everything that we have. One of the things, um, a, a language um, preservation expert by the name of um, Daryl Gipp had talked to me when I first started working for the tribe in D.C., and he was talking about preserving our, our native languages and how so many tribes have lost their languages and that it was my responsibility as a researcher to find everything that I could find related to language, written language, documents, letters, um, any possible recordings, anything that had language at all, because God forbid we should reach um, that point where we have to reestablish our language by rebuilding it from, you know, these sort of precious uh, evidence of our, our language. Mm. So, you know, really put a perspective on how important archival work and research can be for a tribe. Mm. Has there been um, any sort of uh, discoveries or uh, maybe some awakening in you that's been really exciting because of this job? Anything that really pops to mind? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my office as well as uh, the tribes that we work with. We find ourselves in things where we are breaking ground. We're doing precedent setting things, things that haven't been done before. So, you know, it, it, it can be pretty exciting just on that alone. 
very early on, for example, at uh, the Whitestone Hill, the site of what was formerly called the Whitestone uh, Battlefield, um, we consider it as uh, indigenous people, a massacre site. And um, when that project came up for the National Register nomination, we had assumed the work. We were going to do the archeology, span the survey work, the research, and even the writing of the nomination, all things that tribes hadn't done before. And the contrast between the way that they had prepared the story and initially they had told me that all, you know, all the research is done, it's all done. And, and there were people that asked, um, well, we all know, you know, the military people that were there, but do we know what tribal nations, who was there, what families, what chiefs? And uh, their historian had told me that um, the information that you guys want doesn't exist. And um, I just didn't buy that. And so in the end, I wound up going through the sort of uh, research that I would naturally gravitate to as a Native American person, like Record Group 75, National Archives and Records, or even the Indian Commissioner Reports. Whereas a military historian for the state would look at like the um, military commission um, journals and things of that sort. And uh, for myself, we were looking at sources that they probably hadn't um, looked into. And I found far more information than I could have ever imagined. So the idea of us as uh, tribes and individuals doing our own research is really important because I, I believe that sometimes, even with the best of intentions and the best of hearts, you know, because we live it every day, you know, we are probably better able to um, see that uh, evidence or find that information um, when somebody else might not. And in a lot of what we wound up working most and what told the story of massacre was actually right there, I think, in front of everybody, but they didn't read it the way that we read it. They mm -hmm. didn't see it until it was brought out, like by us, you know, and uh, some of these sources were you know, pretty incredible. It was amazing to me to fully work with such a huge story and then see through education efforts. Um, we did panel discussions across North Dakota. And in the end, we were able to, in the end, we were able to, um, I think, educate enough so that when it came up in front of the North Dakota committee, um, the committee members uh, were so supportive. You know, we went there as tribes to try to, um, you know, convey to them certain things. And we sat there and we heard them saying the very things that I would have, I, I would have wanted them to say. Things like, um, we all know what the park is now. It's a state park, Whitestone. And uh, we know what happened in 1863, but surely there was history before that. What was it? 
you know, what was it to the Native people? And I almost stood up and clapped because that was so fantastic. So in the end, I think we did a, a great job as a whole. And it changed on the website from the sort of, it used to say the fiercest clash between the hostile Sioux of Minnesota and uh, the forces of Sibley and Sully. And it, it, that isn't the case. That was incorrect. And to see those things corrected, I think, is um, really empowering that we can make change. I think far too many times we think that we don't have the ability to do those sort of things. So that's just one example. Um, I like the fact that um, we are, you know, paving the way in a, you know, like even with uh, things like repatriation, we as a tribe have had elders that did that for us. And, you know, now we know how these processes go. We haven't had to um, break that trail or fight that battle. And, you know, even uh, to the like legislation and things like that on some of these things, because somebody did that for us before. So that's mm -hmm. important stuff. I appreciate you uh, mentioning repatriation, um, you know, because my, my dad, I went with my dad to D.C. back in 91 uh, in his pickup truck uh, to bring back the, the first 30 plus remains from D.C. And so I still have photos of that trip um, that we were on in that pickup truck out there. And uh, wow. it's, you know, I, I still remember some of the stories and the experiences from that time. So um, well, we'll yeah. have to do a podcast and switch this around because <laughs> I have questions about that for you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that is uh, that in itself is a huge, huge story. And to have been a part of it, um, and the role that your father played in all of that is just amazing. It really mm. is. One thing, and this will be the last thing I mentioned about my dad in this. Sure. Um, he had, and this is to, to a point that you had made about research and sources for history. He used to tell this story, this version of how uh, Custer died, that the elders had told them back in the 30s and 40s, which doesn't line up with the, the official narrative. And about 12, maybe 15 years ago now, I was out in um, Montana up in the Northern Cheyenne tribe, and I was listening to some people talk on how Custer died, and they told the exact same story that my dad told on how Custer died. That's not in the official narrative. And wow. that split from, well, two states away, but people that have never met each other are telling the same story that can be verified at least back into the 1930s. Um, I think it's really interesting um, that, you know, I think there's something to finding different sources of, of information than just the official logs or the, the original narrative. And to, to the point that you're making, right. um, seeking additional sources. And that's exactly, I think, um, the sort of feeling that I had in working with my grandparents. What I was doing was, um, 
doing, you know, taking advantage of a digital age and following up on the things that they would tell me. And I, I wanted to, I guess, not just learn more, but to verify and, oh, here, look, Grandpa, this is what you talked about. And as it just kept growing and growing, I wound up um, discovering so much more about like even the Dakota Scouts and how the reservation was formed. And he had said things like um, his uh, great grandfather was a um, interpreter when he was a small boy. And it turned out to be Thomas uh, A. Robertson. And he did the interpretation back in 1857. So, you know, it was really amazing to go and find that book and bring it to him and show him these photos. And, you know, so when you hear these sort of um, oral history, and even though it maybe isn't in the sources that you've seen, you know, to find that uh, connection or that verification of it is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, just oral history itself, unfortunately, um, in like academia at times um, and in other things that we work with, archaeology and and often in dealing with history, um, you know, I think there's a need at times to for some to see something that they can verify rather than just the oral history. But for myself, I've always found the oral history that others have shared um, to be, uh, yeah, I've always found it to be believable. And if you look into it and really research, you find where, you know, where those connections are. Um, I'll give you a brief example. I had read a story in it's H.S. Morris um, stories, history, stories and legends of Sisseton. And uh, it was published by the Courier, I believe, in the early 1900s. And within these stories, there's a, a small section where it talked about um, a man that had been tried for murder. He had shot a man, a native man. He had he had shot a man that came and I believe had shot his son. Long story short, that this person had been tried in, um, they had a full trial. They had the full trial, jury, judge, everything. And then in the end, even though they had sentenced him and found him guilty, they realized that they did not have jurisdiction. And so they had said that in the end, they had to release him. He just got out, you know, because he had already, you know, been through this whole process. And uh, my uh, stepfather had told me that um, he had heard as a boy, his grandmother talk about this particular man. He knew who this man was and that people used to say that he had the powers to shapeshift and that he could shapeshift into um, I, like a snake and just got right out of jail. And so you have this story that's like, you know, more sounds more like folklore or something that people would say. And he said, I always, you know, looked at her and thought, ah, that's crazy. 
but you know when you read this story and understand how he really did just got out of jail you know in a way it it actually fits together it's hmm. just a matter of how you see it or these things are interpreted so kind of cool yeah yeah so um can you talk about your influences uh, who inspired you uh early on and in your field today you know, I, I think that um, the, the biggest influences for me have been, well, certainly your father and um, your uncle Frank were people that had talked to the elders in my family. I had, I remember distinctly conversations with them because after my grandfather had died, I didn't want to look at the research anymore. I didn't want to look at it anymore. And in a conversation with them, you know, they made it very clear that, you know, this was needed. I think now is the time. And it made me, they basically made me, they and a group of older women start to um, work with them again. They had questions related to a lawsuit that was happening at the time. And they knew that I had information. So they drugged me from that spot where I would have maybe stopped and, uh, you know, put me on a course where I wound up in D.C. in a Supreme Court hearing and wound up learning, uh, you know, a great deal about how a lot of the processes work in, in some of these like major cases and uh, a real deep dive into Dakota genealogy, family histories. And, you know, it just somehow sort of sticks with me to where um, somebody had introduced me once and they were sort of joking saying, you know, you could tell her any family name and she'll tell you where you're from and where, you know, but it kind of winds up like that because, and so some of these older people and one in particular was uh, a grandmother of mine, Marie Bear. And Marie Bear was somebody that knew family genealogy. She knew everybody. She knew everybody's, even their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I would have relatives that um, would tell me, like cousins that live maybe in Minneapolis or wherever, come back and say, oh, I met this older lady that shook my hand and told me she was my relative and they're trying to figure out who she was. Oh, well, that's Marie, you know, and <laughs> how she's related. How would she know them? You know, she just really and knew our the family history so far back and uh, never used a computer, you know, didn't use any of the sources, didn't need it. And, uh, you know, there were others that I worked with at the time that had so much knowledge of how we came to be where we are, um, how the world around me here, Sisseton Wapatin, the tribe that we are now, the things that we've been through, 
they had uh, in many instances like firsthand knowledge of those things. So I, they would sort of uh, set the framework on something and I would do my part of it. And, you know, we would develop the, you know, the full picture of almost anything that they brought together with me. So I find that as well as um, through like culture and things of that sort that I've been completely shaped by, um, I would say, family, uh, community, tribe. Um, so the education that I've received is pretty unique because I didn't receive it through a university. It's been completely shaped almost organically, you know, from within the tribe or families and community. Hmm. And that was going to go to my next question is how has that career developed um, uh, through, well, uh, the general question is uh, through college and post-college, um, but through the, you know, that, that young um, era that people are in their twenties, you know, or in college in their early to mid twenties, um, how has how has your your career developed? I know we've touched on it a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, in the 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 different in dealing with um, I think in dealing with tribal history, um, researching and collecting uh, family genealogies, or researching on different project issues, land legislation, and all of those sort of things. It really, I think, evolves into or has created in me um, uh, an ability to tell a story and to take all of these elements and try to convey history in a factual manner and in a way that would allow a person to make up their own mind by, you know, everything that, that we're sharing. And um, I think that in itself has led to so many more things. Like, for example, um, this is getting into like our fifth, sixth year in uh, developing tribal tourism, which is another aspect, again, of taking control of our cultural history, telling our own stories. And uh, in tourism at times, you know, there have been in the past ideas of exploitation or that these stories are told in a way that, um, you know, doesn't favor us and things of that sort. So it's really an empowering thing. And it just seems as if, you know, one aspect of it has grown into another. And uh, to try to, for example, with the former Tekawitha Fine Arts Center, um, we no longer had access to all of the paintings that were there from the 70s. And we began to write letters and lobby for, you know, the... Um, to be able to, you know, keep the paintings and share them and things of that sort. So when um, they had agreed and turned this huge art collection over to Sisseton Wapatun, the Historic Preservation Office and the Tribal Archives, then boom, all of a sudden, this was not something I planned, but I'm needing to learn to... Um, do my best to protect and, and curate the collection. And I think the tribe is learning along with 
you know, all of us and, you know, what our needs are and how we need to get to where we need to go in this. So it's a huge learning process. But it, I think for what I do, um, you know, it, it still remains fairly simple. I, but I don't have uh, the sort of days where I get to just sit down and research one family. You know, I, I don't get to do that anymore. The projects are much bigger. Um, and it, it, it really is so broad that, for example, in dealing with things like um, missing, murdered Indigenous women, you know, part of my um, job was just to try to explain in a, a historical sense, you know, how these things happen or why, you know, and I think in the end, it really came down to expressing that the reality is that there was a time in America when it was okay to kill Native people. And so the devaluing of Native lives and, you know, how that affects for Indigenous women in America, you know, is a huge thing. It's a huge issue. And we're starting to hear more and more about it and starting to develop the solutions for it. So that became um, sort of a natural jump into working with state legislature because wanting to see things like... Um, the like tourism and uh, finding that there were obstacles or the there or maybe no resources or a lack of structure or organization. And um, so getting involved in those things to be able to, you know, further the tribe's interest. And, you know, I'm a, I, I view myself as a, a bridge builder. You know, I focus on um, positivity and progress and, you know, how to partner to make things happen. And I think that those things are, are badly needed. And, um, you know, it's just a combination of history and, uh, you know, everything that happens now in our modern um, state capital and, you know, it's everything politics. It's everything that I think people think politics are. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that, but. Yeah. So in your experience then, um, how have opportunities uh, presented themselves and how have those opportunities or how have they changed in the way they present themselves over the years? Well, the, I think the, I'm, I'm really amazed at times, you know, I guess like a lot of people, you know, or at least people around here and people I grew up with, I think we're pretty humble. And uh, there's times where I'm surprised to find myself um, with a seat at a table, you know, somewhere where I didn't expect it. And, I remind myself that, you know, because of a unique background and a unique um, perspective and things that, you know, that that's why I'm here. Maybe not, you know, the um, education background in a, in a specific way, but for what's needed um, at that time, you know, my presence there is value, 
is valuable because I can think of uh, often a lot of elders that I think really should be sitting there. And the best that I can do is to bring their voices to that table. And the more that I do of that, the more, um, and I've always believed, and it started in the beginning with genealogy and documents and research by sharing, reaching out, interacting with people. Um, they brought more to me. And then the collection itself just grew by engagement. And I find that to be true when I'm working in this you know, capacity now with uh, the history and then the collections that the tribe has, its holdings, um, by sharing them, showing them, talking to others. Um, we are receiving donations. I have regular people that are bringing things to us. And some of those things are, are really phenomenal. And then along with that comes uh, the connections to different individuals. And now I wind up, I spent uh, six years with the South Dakota Humanities Council. And uh, of course, their work in, um, in sharing things related to, in the humanities and all that that encompasses. And then with, um, now I'm working with uh, Art South Dakota and I'm a part of a number of museum boards. One, I think the understanding that the tribal voice um, is needed is just grown. And so with that becomes uh, different opportunities and different connections and, you know, through networking, uh, different opportunities pre present themselves. I wound up uh, working with George Washington University and uh, being certified through their international tourism, uh, cultural heritage tourism studies, so that I would be able to learn, you know, how all of that works a little better too. And those are things that I don't think I, I would find if I weren't working in the way that I was doing. So some of those things I think are one of the things that I my best skill, I believe, is knowing people who know things. And, you know, just by connecting individuals, uh, there's always great results. And along with that comes opportunities, too. Mm. Uh, wow. You know, one of the things I will add to that, that, you know, because when I meet young people now, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when I meet young people now, and, uh, and I have to go back to your father in this, because um, my very last conversation with him, we were talking about, um, we talked about a lot of things, but we talked about youth. And we talked about how to engage with people. And he said, it is simple. He said, you just ask them, tell me your dream. Tell me your dream. And so I carry that with me so much. I, I, I can't even express how much. When I see young people and, um, you know, they maybe have gone through things or, and so I'm always thinking that, you know, tell me your dream, but it comes out like, what do you like to do? 
You know, what are you interested in? What kind of work do you want to do? And finding somebody that, you know, wants to do something and knowing the person that they should talk to and ideally, um, you know, helping them shape into, you know, evolve into working within that field and finding that dream and the fulfillment of that is just phenomenal. So that's probably my favorite thing in in all that I do, whether it's in legislature or here in the archives or wherever I might be. Hmm. Well, that that does slide right into the uh, the question on what would you say to the eighteen or twenty two year old that's listened to this conversation? Yeah, exactly that. Tell me your dream, and you know the biggest thing I, I think. We um, here in my office with um, Tribal Historic Preservation, we're always advocating for our Native people to become those curators like yourself, to become um, the um, historians or to hold those sort of positions that, you know, can really assist the progress of the work that we do. So when you see young Native people that are working in a capacity like National Park Service or wherever they might be, it's really amazing to me. And, you know, it it seems like it is the fulfillment of years of work. We have been um, working towards developing an interest in cultural preservation and developing an interest in uh, the sort of things like archaeology, anthropology, and things like that. And I worked with the Minnesota Historical Society in a fellowship project they had um, some years back. And a few years ago, I met a young woman, and she said, uh, you probably don't remember me, she said, but I was there in the presentation that you did with the Minnesota Historical Society Fellowship in Cultural Preservation. It was called something else. And she said, I'm now working for a tribal historic preservation office. And da 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 da. You know, I was so excited. I was just excited that, you know, it really had done what it was intended to do. So, you know, wanting to inspire and share and, you know, so like for a lot of people that stop by, you know, especially young people, you know, I, like, do you have a minute? Let me take you down to the archives. You know, let me show you what we have or to just get them looking, thinking and, you know, all of those things. And I think sometimes um, everything in the collections, the archives itself, the energy around it. Um, it does its own thing with young people. It really does. It can be inspiring. And I do presentations and things like that for schools, for classes, and, you know, whoever. I, I do find that the toughest crowd are like um, maybe fourth or fifth grade. And uh, I find that I've said in the past that you know, I'm less nervous on the floor of the House of Representatives giving a floor speech than I am with um, fourth grade, you know, because you never know what they're going to say. And I had done this presentation with them 
and showed them artifacts. We talked about, um, you know, buffalo. Uh, we looked at stone tools, all of these different things. And they were great kids, great kids. And so any questions at the end? That's the part that makes me nervous. Any questions? And uh, they said uh, the one question they had was, um, do you see ghosts in here? They said. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's kids. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so I'm going to switch gears real quick before mm -hmm. we go. Um, you know, so this episode is going to air in September mm -hmm. and September is generally, um, sort of the buildup of voting season, uh, in the election cycles. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, why, why is it important, especially for, uh, native and indigenous young people to get out there and vote? Uh, what, what is your perspective on this? Great, great question. Well, first of all, I think um, I'll start with a moment that um, from when I first stepped onto the floor of the South Dakota House of Representatives. And I think until you get there, you never really know how that's going to feel. And I, I looked around me and I saw things that um, I knew were, you know, a hundred some years old. And to think that in um, 1924, um, we didn't even have the right to be citizens of the United States or the right to vote for women wasn't until the 19th Amendment um, in uh, like a little over 100 years ago. And at one point, one of the other legislators had said that the desks that we were sitting at were made in 20, in, I'm sorry, in 1912. And the idea that at that time that this desk was created and placed here, there was no possible way that I would have been here at that desk. And these things are hard fought for whether it be as a, a woman, as a Native American, um, you know, they, they really are things that um, I think if we understood the work that it took to get there, that we would appreciate it more. And the idea that um, every vote counts, every vote counts, and it directs, you know, how we um, deal with the issues that we all face, you know, it can be something that I think is hugely important. Myself, I, I tend to focus on things like um, economic development and how we can address some of the obstacles maybe that keep tribes in poverty and, uh, you know, things that I think we have to be the driving force for, you know, and, and the other, on the other side of the coin, um, I'm often in a, a committee and uh, we are looking at data related to any particular type of issue and whether it be in South Dakota um, or minority populations on reservations. And we look at all this data and numbers, but we never look at how things got this way. And I think that's an important point, too. And so by our vote, you know, we're choosing who's going to speak for us. And, you know, I would go even beyond um, just voting. I'd love to see more people, more indigenous people in uh, the state, the halls of the Capitol. 
on a regular basis just to become familiar with it. One of my favorite photos is of myself with these young girls in their ribbon skirts. They're just, they're girls from here. They were actually from enemy swim day school and um, wanting them to know that this is your capital. You know, this is the people's house that includes you and that you have every right to be here. Your voice is important here. And if you want to come back and be a page or later on an intern when you're in college or come back as a legislator, you know, I'm, I'm here to help you to do that and to make it comfortable for all of us. I mean, those things are important too. Oh, that's great. Where, where can our listener uh, get in touch with you if they needed to, to reach out to you? Well, as a legislator, I'm super public. So my, you know, just even, um, you know, a Google search will pop up an awful lot. But um, I, as far as here at the Tribal Administration Building within the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, I'm easily found usually in the archives. Okay, that's yeah. great. Well, Tamara, thank you so much for, for being a part of this podcast. This is a great conversation. Thank sure. you so much. Well, thank you. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Representative St. John again for her time and sharing her story with us. The work that she does on NAGPRA and the, the oversight uh, and curating of our cultural items and history um, on the Sisson Wapatan Oyate uh, can't be underscored. Um, and this goes to all those community members out there in our Native American and Indigenous communities across the country. Um, you know, their work largely goes unthanked and unacknowledged, and it's hard work and it's a lot of research and dedication, and it's so appreciated. Curate and that they're stewards over, you know, making sure that those histories aren't lost um, is extremely important. And I think, you know, for those who are looking to go into this work, uh, I applaud you. Um, this is one is very interesting to know where we came from, uh, but two, it's just um, it's a matter of just selfless dedication, and that comes through in this conversation for sure. In my interactions with um, Representative St. John over the years, uh, before she was representative. Just as the tribal historical preservation officer, um, you know, she's she's been a dedicated community member all these years, and I just want to acknowledge that. So, uh, Tamara, uh, thank you again, and I look forward to our future conversations, which will be happening soon. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So, please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna, that's the A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, uh, Five Plain Questions pages on Instagram and Twitter, and also the PlainsArt.org website. There you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for someone for me to talk to, uh, please uh, look me up and message me. I'd really like to hear from you. All right, that's it. You take care, and we will see you next week.
This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.